You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. All the girls are complicated. Everyone is precious too, and you might get lucky if you do. Oh, you might get lucky if you do. Find the one that makes you laugh. Find the one that takes your breath where you won't get everything that you want. Oh, but you'll need one to dote upon. Hello and welcome to episode 107 of the Christian Feminist Podcast. I'm Victoria Reynolds-Farmer and with me today are regular panelists Leah Flinnegan and Katie Grubbs. Hi Leah and Katie. Hello. Hello. Let's introduce ourselves for anybody that's new to the program. Katie, you go first. Hi, I'm Katie Grubbs. I live in Houston, Texas. Well, actually we live in Sugarland now, Sugarland, Texas with my husband David Grubbs of the Christian Humanist Podcast and our four children. Um, I am an adjunct professor of English at Houston Baptist University, and I also am involved in teaching women's Bible study at my church. Thanks, Katie. Leah, how about you? My name is Leah Flanagan. I was recently married here in the Twin Cities, uh, and we are currently moving to St. Paul. Um, I have my master's in early modern European history, and a very great love of Shakespeare. Thanks, Leah, uh, and congratulations again. Uh, I am Victoria Reynolds Farmer. I'm uh, have also just recently moved to Woodstock, Georgia, from Minnesota, with my husband Michael Farmer of the Christian Humanist Podcast and our two cats. Uh, so I know I, I share in Leah's pain about the. Uh, horrendousness that is moving to a new place. Uh, I have a master's in English and theater from the University of Georgia and a PhD in early modern drama and women's studies from Florida State University. Uh, So I am excited to talk about today's topic, which is Lisa Klein's young adult novel Ophelia and the recent Uh, film appropriation, which came out June of this year. But before we get into our discussion of the novel and film, we're going to give a little bit of an introduction to Ophelia as a character. What do we talk about when we talk about Ophelia? When you think about the major characters of Hamlet, Ophelia speaks the second to least of all of them. When you're talking about number of lines per character, she has just 170 lines. Um, I said she speaks second to least of the major characters. Gertrude, with 155 lines, speaks least. For comparison, Hamlet, because of course his name is in the title, speaks the most. He has 1,476 lines. Um, Claudius is in a distant second with 538 lines. So if Ophelia has 170, that means Hamlet has about uh, nine or so times as many lines as she does. 
the dominance of male voices in the play makes the female-centric approach that Lisa Klein's novel takes make sense, um, but the novel also works to respond to Ophelia's cultural resonance as even larger than she's just a character in this Shakespeare play. The novel knows that when we talk about Ophelia, we're talking about more than just her as a character. We're talking about her as a cultural artifact. Uh, so I, I want to speak a little bit to Ophelia as cultural artifact. Uh, one vision of her that a lot of people are probably familiar with without even knowing that they know it um, is a vision of her popularized by several 19th century paintings that are important for two reasons. Uh, one, usually they reduce her to her death scene in one way or another, and two, usually they show her surrounded by flowers. She's connected to flowers and their meanings because of the speech she gives, uh, the, the madness speech in Act 4, Scene 5. But these paintings are typically so filled with flowers that it's kind of hard not to think of Ophelia and a flower as the same. Uh, very delicate, with a really short lifespan after they are plucked shall we say. Uh, some of the most famous paintings of her are the 1865 Arthur Hughes, uh, where she's holding flowers and about to get into the water. The 1885 John William Waterhouse, where she's sitting in the water right before she's drowned. Uh, her lap is covered in flowers and they're in her hair. And probably the most well-known and visually recognizable, the 1852 John Everett Millay, um, which the film that we'll discuss today actually uh, begins with in its opening shot, uh, which I think is very clever that the film is speaking to this uh, painting tradition. In these paintings, uh, Ophelia is less a character from Hamlet and more a visual embodiment of a certain kind of delicate, passive, easily overwhelmable femininity. So she's removed uh, from the context of the play. Another later development in history that removes her similarly from the context of the play uh, that some of our listeners might also be familiar with is the 1994 best-selling self-help book, Reviving Ophelia by Mary Pfeiffer. Uh, in this book, Pfeiffer uses Ophelia as a symbol of a certain kind of teenage dysfunction, um, a shorthand for a problem that she says her book wants to explore and try to fix. Uh, here's Pfeiffer's description of uh, this problem. Something dramatic happens to girls in early adolescence. They lose their resiliency and optimism and become less curious and inclined to take risks. They lose their assertive, energet energetic, and tomboyish personalities and become more deferential, self-critical, and depressed. Uh, and then here's her description of Ophelia, um, which she uses as kind of the ultimate example of uh, the trend I just quoted. The story of Ophelia shows the destructive forces that affect young women. 
As a girl, Ophelia is happy and free, but with adolescence, she loses herself. When she falls in love with Hamlet, she lives only for his approval. She has no inner direction. Rather, she struggles to meet the demands of Hamlet and her father. Her value is determined utterly by their approval. Ophelia is torn apart by her efforts to please. When Hamlet spurns her because she is an obedient daughter, she goes mad with grief. Dressed in elegant clothes that weigh her down, she drowns in a stream filled with flowers. Uh, so first I should say, I think the problem that Pfeiffer is talking about definitely existed uh, in the uh, mid to late 90s when I was a young teenager. I think it probably still exists. Um, that kind of change in girls is negative and should be discussed in society. My problem here is that she uses Ophelia to do it. Uh, Pfeiffer's characterization of Ophelia has almost no evidence from the play to support it. We don't know anything about Ophelia's girlhood from Shakespeare's play. Uh, we don't even really know how old Ophelia and Hamlet are from Shakespeare's play. So, like what these paintings are doing in removing her from context, uh, Pfeiffer is doing something uh, very similarly. She's not a character uh, from a place and a time. She's just a watchword for a teen girl dysfunction. Uh, so that's a little bit about um, what we talk about when we talk about Ophelia. Katie or Leah, would you like to add anything there before we jump into the novel itself? All I would say is that I think that that, that tendency... I don't know if it's because Shakespeare has always been thought of is thought of as such a big deal, or I, that tendency to want to treat characters from Shakespeare's plays as if they were real people with you know real histories that Shakespeare just chose not to give us the whole story um, is strange. And I, but I've seen it before a lot of times, you know, and even even when it's not one of the history plays, because some of the you know a lot of the people written about in history plays really did, did exist, but you know. My, would would tr often try to claim things like they would say things like, well, it's obvious that you know this you know so and so did this thing before before you know the story of the play began, and I would kind of say, well, how do you know that? These are fictional people, you know. But that but I, I think it's so interesting that impulse to 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 try to give a fuller psychology or to try to create something, you know. And that's not the same, I think, as what Klein is doing in the novel, right? She's kind of she's she's creating a fuller story based on the play, that's not the same thing as going, well, it's obvious from the play that Ophelia had a happy girlhood and then everything went wrong, like you said, when you were reading from Pfeiffer. So it's just interesting. I think that's something that I've seen in lots of different places. And I, I, I'm interesting to me when I see that impulse to try to, you know, historicize, I guess, characters from the tragedies or comedies. Right. I think what's interesting and different about what Klein's novel is trying to do is that she is taking the margins to the center and pushing the center to the margins and sort of reframing the text that way. Yes, that's a great way to say it. I agree. Uh, so I, I think we'll jump into the novel now. Um, 
Klein's novel, titled Ophelia, was published in 2006, and the novel has three parts. The first is about her youth and her entrance into Queen Gertrude's court in Elsinore Castle. The second covers her developing romantic relationship with Hamlet, um, primarily after his return from Wittenberg, and the final section of the novel takes place after the action of the play has finished and covers Ophelia's experiences at a convent in France uh, where she arrives after faking her own death and taking uh, Hamlet's advice to get thee to a nunnery quite literally. Each of us is going to cover one section of the novel and then switch to the corresponding section of the June 2019 film. Leah, why don't you get us started and talk about the early part of the novel? Certainly. So the first part of the novel really focuses on the court of Elsinore. We meet Ophelia as a young girl uh, where she's really let wild um, without direction of how to grow up as a true young lady because her father, Polonius, is so powered Uh, hungry that he kind of leaves her behind until one day she of course gets the attention of Queen Gertrude and Gertrude says or asks to bring her into her company of ladies at the court where she is then instructed in how to become a proper lady um This world that Ophelia enters, that Klein builds in her novel, it it reminds me of a lot of current young adult fantasy novels. Um, They simultaneously describe a setting in detail while leaving a large portion of the details that structure the world open to the imagination. So what I mean by that is that the court that Ophelia finds herself practically pushed into by Uh, The aspirations of her father outlines a complex court system surrounding the monarchy from the perspective of the women who are in the background. Ophelia is not a woman or a lady of birth. She is a lady by appointment. And so she is at the very bottom of the pecking order in this community of women that she finds herself into. Um, But at the same time, we're never really given solid definition of how the court operates or what the significance or insignificance of these women that we meet carry within the court. So even though this is the world that Ophelia inhabits, except for the female society that she describes as she serves Elnora and Queen Gertrude, we don't really see what her world entails. We get very vague descriptions of Elsinore as a city and as a castle. Um, and we don't know much about the society at large. We know that the world is dominated by men and by their disregard of women. So Ophelia's treatment by her father and brother is a tool for their advancement. Um, the disregard of Prince Hamlet, Rosencrantz, and Guildenstern that they have for Christiana's reputation after a prank that Ophelia and Hamlet hatch comes to fruition, and also the general language regarding the use 
types of women, from describing them as unintelligent wenches to encouraging men and boys to, quote, pinch their curves, end quote. Um, it shows- I want to I want to interrupt you real quick. Um, I mm-hmm. definitely want to come back to the, the novels um, and Elsinore's um really intense rape culture, because uh, I, I think that's important to talk about. Um, but before we move on, you mentioned mm-hmm. a couple of characters uh, that are original characters to the novel um, and that yeah. don't exist in Shakespeare's play. You mentioned uh, Elnora and Christiana in this community of women. Can you tell us mm-hmm. um, who those women are? Absolutely. Um, Elnora is an older lady of the court. Uh, she is assigned to Ophelia, basically, to teach her the ways of becoming a lady. And she also uh, ends up teaching Ophelia healing and introducing her to another important female character, um, Metkild, who is the healing woman of Elsa, who I believe uh, more significance later on in the book. Um, Christiana is another lady who waits upon Queen Gertrude. She is around the same age as Ophelia, but because of her rank at birth, she is of higher importance than Ophelia and tends to put her down um, in a classic mean girls type of way, usually with side comments, um, trickery, pranks, uh, spying, blackmail, that kind of thing. Um, And both of them are very key to Ophelia's development. Uh, Thank you. Yeah, I I think that's great. I I think at its core, this is a novel that's that's really about female community and and how female community shapes Ophelia into the person that she grows into. Um, so I think it's really important to, to talk about how um, that female community does exist right from the beginning um, in the court of Elsinore. Um, but you, you also mentioned uh, misogyny at court, um, and I, I called it rape culture. Can we talk a little bit more about that, how, um, how the men in this court treat women? Absolutely. Um, really, women are shown as tools or simply as existing. They don't ha- have a purpose much more than establishing power or for marriage um, and it's it's not really developed much further than that, which quite honestly, I find this as a uh, a weak a weak link in Klein's writing. Um, yeah, I, I wanted to ask you to put your <laughs> put your women's history hat on um, and and speak to that because I, I thought you'd have something to say about it. Oh, I definitely do. <laughs> um, Hamlet is set somewhere in the 1300s and 1400s. It really depends on the interpretation of it. Um, Of course, Klein isn't that specific, but we can assume that it's somewhere within those 200 years. Um, She actually, in the novel, gives us years. Oh, did she? Okay, and I missed it. Oh, And that was so weird to me because she said it in the time when the play was written, not when the story should be happening. Yes, that annoyed me as well. Yeah, I, well, I just want, it was it's just such a strange choice. I didn't really understand why she, I mean, because, you know, it's, it's supposed to have been taken, taking place 
the historical events, right? If they, you know, if whatever historical sources Shakespeare was using were medieval, but she sets it, yeah, right at the turn of the, the you know, the century. Anyway. I, I okay. think she sets it in the early modern period so that they can read medieval texts. I think the reading list is why. I think you're probably right oh, okay. about that. Um, we'll we'll get to the reading list um, in, in a little bit. Um, where okay. We? Well, that that was a mistake on my part for not reading those dates closely enough. Um, but even so, so she's setting this story in the early 1600s. Um, classic Hamlet. Um, the Hamlet that Shakespeare wrote is said in the 1300s and 1400s. And if it was set in that late medieval period, we have some very interesting female influences in courts showing up throughout Europe. Um, <laughs> to name a few, there's Isabella I of Castile in Spain. There's Laura Soretta, the Italian feminist and humanist author, Marjorie Kemp, uh, Christine de Pizan, uh, Julian of Norwich, and Joan of Arc, oh. just to name a couple. And I believe we have done episodes on, um, on Christine de Pizan and have we... Uh, Julian of Norwich as well. I don't think we've done a Marjorie Kemp, but we should. We definitely should. Um, but those are just the 1300s and 1400s. If you extend that out to the 1500s and 1600s, you get, of course, Queen Isabel and Ferdinand of Spain, who sent, who started the Spanish Inquisition, of course, but um, very powerful people. Um, we have Elizabeth in England, uh, not to mention her sister, Mary. Um, we have female rulers in Sweden and Italy throughout that time period. There should be more women powerhouses in the court that we see in Klein's novel. They should not be simply objects or um, pawns in political games. They should be players in this game. Well, I, I think, though, just to, to push a little bit, I think um, Gertrude, though she might not be playing the game as much as we would like her to, I think she's doing that a bit, especially... Uh, there's that scene, I'm not going to flip to it and quote from it, but there's a scene early in the novel where she's, um, she's asking Ophelia to read, um, to her and telling her about Margaret of Navarre and, and the fact that Margaret of Navarre writes essentially both religious devotionals and naughty romantic poetry and this idea that men want women to be unidimensional and um, they they want this sort of stark divide between good and bad and sex and purity and and they want women to be either or of those things um, but uh, Gertrude says you know Queen Margaret is smart and and she knows that most women are are essentially both so I I think that um, you're right about 
Klein avoiding some nuance with the time jump, but I think she's she's also trying to uh, complicate it a little bit, particularly with the Queen Margaret bits. That is fair. Um, I I don't necessarily put Queen Gertrude into my criticism because you're right that she does have more power that we do see. But we should also hear more about other court ladies um, wielding some power or influencing their husbands and talking about politics. Um, instead, we have this community very limited to needlework and healing and they do read devotionals together, all of which is good. And it is wonderful that this is their community. But especially for women who are at court at the capital of their country, they would be talking about a lot more than just what Klein is describing. Ophelia should have had more exposure to the political depths of her surroundings. I see what you're saying. She keeps talking about like wanting more information, but what she mostly wants to know about is like romance. Like she talks about longing to go to distant places, but even more, she, she says, I long to know about love. And, and then that one of the weirder sentences I think I've ever read, she says, I imagined visiting the wicked country of Italy where the men are taught to overcome virgins. There's rape culture, Victoria and the women know many freedoms. I'm like, those two things don't sound like they should be true at the same time, which that sounds like a contradiction. But, you know, um, even if we don't think about that, about it that way, it's just interesting. I, I kind of can see what Leah's saying that, you know, you might think that these women might sometimes be talking about what the men are doing if they're all jockeying for position. And we know that they might sometimes be teaming up with their men to, to try to advance themselves because Polonius tries to use Ophelia like that in the book. He presses her for information. You know, what did the queen say? Who's most preferred? Is, you know, does the king, you know, prefer this courtier to me? And Ophelia, you know, keeps the secrets of Queen Gertrude. She doesn't do that, but presumably other women might share information with their husbands or others or whatever as a way of attempting to, like, advance the whole family, politically speaking. That's true. That that doesn't really happen here. And you're right that it doesn't seem um, terribly realistic to what we know of, of these courts historically and, and how they worked. On the other hand, I mean, she is writing for young younger readers, though. And that could be one reason that she, you know, didn't do, put in as much political intrigue. If this was a book that she was writing with, you know, a more sophisticated adult reader in mind, maybe she would have. You know, that could also be an audience awareness thing. We, we should say, um, and I'll, I'll link to, we're not going to reference it or quote from it directly uh, here, but I will kind of dance around and refer to um, in a recent interview that Lisa Klein did with the Folger Shakespeare Library's Shakespeare Uncovered podcast. Um, when the film was digitally released, uh, the Folger talked to Klein about the novel and the film and I'll link to that interview in the show notes but one thing that she does uh, reveal in that interview which I, I did not know um, in all my research about this novel until I read the interview about a week ago was she did not set out to write a YA novel she just set out to write a novel where Ophelia was the center of the action 
and wow, okay. uh, and it sort of became a YA novel at the behest of her publisher. And when that happened, it became more romance centric. Mm-hmm. So, oh, okay, that I, makes a lot of things make sense about this book, right? Okay. I think it does. Um, I think it does make sense, particularly the um, the last few pages of the book contain a, I think, rather tacked on, um, unnecessary romance, uh, that I could have, uh, could have done without. So I, I think, um, I think that audience does change things about the book, but also I think this is, um, a rare YA novel in that it mostly does not talk down to its young audience. Uh, I later in this episode we are going to talk about a scholarly article um, that I published about this novel. Um, I wrote my dissertation on YA novels that adapt Shakespeare for girls, so I have read many of those novels. Uh, I read five of them for my dissertation, and uh, you know five that I wrote about in the dissertation, and probably. 12 or 15 more that I didn't end up writing about at all. So I'm, I'm fairly um, well-versed in this subgenre, and I think I can say um, Lisa Klein is the rare girls YA writer that uh, really has a lot of respect for her young audience and, and treats them like they are intelligent and don't need their hands held all the way through. And I think you can feel that... Um, in the variance of the female community in this novel. We don't just have Christiana, the mean girl archetype. We also have um, Ophelia surrounded by different types of successful older women. You have Metchtild, who is a skilled healer. You have Elnora, who knows everything about the court. You have Gertrude, who is a queen. And all of those ladies are valid ways to be ladies. I would agree with that. I think you're right. There, the, and and you know, and, and maybe it makes the men seem like like you said because the men are pushed more to the periphery. She she gives herself space to to work through lots of different types of feminine uh, feminine ways of being and 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 different ways of of knowing too. Um, I will say one other thing before we move on because I know we probably need to move on. But one other one thing that um, I noticed in this book. And, and it's, and it, it's referenced a lot at the beginning. That's why I'm bringing it up now is that it always seems like that if often in stories, if there's going to be some kind of contrast made between a girl who thinks and like all the other girls who, you know, are just empty headed for whatever reason, all those other girls are always like, they're always doing needlework. And I noticed it in this book, especially because it's explicitly contrasted. And, you know, Christiana, the mean girl is skilled. She's not even like bad at it. She's like really skilled with her needle. But this is painted as still, in, you know, massively inferior to wanting to read books. And it, and it grated on me a little bit, not because I feel like that Lisa Klein's pushing that any harder than in any other text, but because, you know, I've seen it so many times and I almost started to feel bad. Like, we, like cause won't someone say a word for the women who are good at needlework? Because that's skilled labor. I don't know. That was something that I thought about that never occurred to me before to be frustrated by in any other text. But then I finally noticed it in this one and thought, that's kind of strange. Yeah, it's true. That is like, I mean, it's gendered labor, but it's it's a skill that should be valued. That's an interesting point. Particularly because in this case, these are high class women. I mean, I know that they were encouraged to pursue things like needlework, but it's not like she's having to get good at it to earn money for her family to survive. You know, if she's gotten really skilled at it, it's because she's 
practiced a lot. She's done it a lot. She's taking pride in her work. It was just interesting. I thought that she was pointedly telling us that Christiana is is excellent in her needlework. And probably part of that is because then she can make fun of Ophelia for being bad at it. I don't know. Maybe it's a plot device. And I just need to calm down. Maybe so. Okay, so I think we've covered um, Ophelia's entrance into court enough. Katie, why don't you lead us into Ophelia's romantic relationship with Hamlet? Sure. So um, Ophelia first encounters Hamlet in the novel when she is a child, very young, and then doesn't see him for a number of years because he goes to university. And when he returns... um, when he returns again from university, well, and actually in the book, there are two, this doesn't happen in the film, but in the book, there are two returns. So he comes back from Wittenberg um, from university and um, after being there for years, not being home for years and, you know, kind of re-encounters her as she's now old enough to pursue a romantic relationship. And then later on leaves again and then comes back again after his father passes away. But they, they kind of, um, and in the, in the, the movie, it's also kind of compressed down a little bit, but um, in the book, up he comes home from uh she says from some adventure upon the seas i guess between leaving school and coming back um and she is i think she's about 15 when he comes back i think that they said in the previous chapter that she's about 15 and she's very excited because she's she's really interested in hamlet um and you know in her first kind of encounter with him um she they kind of have this sparring like she um he's you know kind of poking gentle fun and um and horatio asks a question and i found the page so i'm going to read it out loud um but one thing i want to point out is that one of the first things he says when they encounter um each other again is that the wild doe has become a gentle deer he says this to her and she says showing that he recognized my transformation but he's also describing her as game to be hunted so that's part of that kind of culture, like you said, Victoria, of women as prey um, that might be happening in this or that is happening in this uh, this court. And she says straight back, indeed, my lord, this collar and chain do hold me fast. I fear I have been forcibly tamed, which is a little heavy handed. But, you know, <laughs> they, they do the whole woman taming language earlier in the novel, too. Um, that's true. El, that's El Nora um, call, flat out calls her a shrew. Um, and she talks about um, uh, putting a bridle in her mouth, like a scold's bridle. Um, so there's there's a, oh, whole, yeah. a whole lot of um, early modern woman taming language, um, which we should say this novel is quite knowledgeable of many other Shakespeare plays that are not Hamlet. There are references and quotations from lots of other plays. Um, there's that taming of the shrew stuff. There is quite a lot of, um, as you'd like it, in Hamlet and Ophelia's romantic relationship. They do this whole pastoral thing where they frolic in the fields dressed like shepherds and shepherdesses um, mm-hmm. so that no one can know they're in love with each other. So there's there's a lot of kind of early modern um, spot the reference going on here. Absolutely. And, um, and, you know, even kind of lines from other plays. And it's an interesting encounter because Horatio asked the question, um, should be, let, let's ask the ladies to join our debate because Christiana is also in the scene, the mean girl. And Horatio says, should beauty of the body or beauty of the mind be more prized by true lovers? Um, and interestingly, Ophelia is, on the one hand, just excited to be talking to Hamlet, 
because she's, you know, admired him since she was a child. But also, she's very excited about the chance to talk wittily and, you know, have a conversation about something. Um, and she says, I pondered Horatio's question in earnest, for this was a chance to talk of love like the noble ladies in Castiglione's book of the courtier. So she's immediately like, oh, this is a situation that I've read about. I'm super excited to participate in this debate and discussion. And, you know, and that I think is, I think that that is something that, I don't know, it, it's, it's, it, it's interesting to read and it's hits close to home for me because that's something that I really appreciate in my life and particularly appreciate in my marriage. Um, the, the idea that it could be a, uh, that, that, you know, time spent debating issues is quality time is dear to my heart. Um, oh, me so, too. I definitely yeah, like, was, was feeling my own relationship when they were having that, uh, when they were having that discussion. And the fact that one of the reasons you know that Ophelia and Hamlet are sort of right for each other is that they um, they talk about the same texts when they talk to each other. They experience the world sort of through the same types of books, and they talk so much in readerly, writerly metaphors when they're doing their verbal sparring. That's very true. Um, and he, you know, he kind of makes a play on words um, you know, and, and a joke that she does not think is funny because he says women are wantons for they make men to want them. Um, and Hamlet laughs at his own joke. Horatio looks uncomfortable, which I have to say, I don't know. I, I don't know if Klein was doing this on purpose or maybe they, they kind of pushed it because of the ending that they did put on the book. But I feel like Horatio came across as much more likable than Hamlet in this book, <laughs> which I don't really he, know if that was her intention or not. Ha- Hamlet's um, a, a bit boorish. Well, and I, you know, because the whole time I'm thinking, I feel like this Ophelia might prefer Horatio. Like, I, it's it's just, it's interesting. Um, I feel like she humanized Ophelia way more. And Ka- Hamlet is kind of still himself. So, uh, in, in many ways, very similar to what he is in the play. Um, so it was just kind of interesting. But anyway, so they have this kind of, you know, in, they have this discussion, this encounter. And she says that she must find a way to see him again. And then, you know, he comes and finds her in the garden. And, um, and basically their, their initial encounters are interesting because he keeps praising her with metaphors, such as we might find in early modern sonnet language. So he says, you know, um, let me find it. Um, you shine with virtue and the light drew me like a moth to a flame. And she says, well, that, that doesn't fit because I'm not a moth and you're not a fire. Like, or I'm not a moth. You're not a moth. I'm not a fire. Like, so she almost kind of is aggressively literalizing the things he's saying back to him as like a form of a challenge it's very interesting like right. you said, Victoria. it's yeah, sort very... of sonnet 130 right like he's he's doing the Petrarchan thing and she's like that's dumb and not realistic yeah she's just she's just kind of shutting him down um and you know but then still you know still is interested in him even though she maybe it seems like she feels like the, the ways he's trying to talk to her are kind of stupid and she says in in their first encounter in the garden um Somewhere in there, she says, why don't you just say that you wanted to see me so you came here? <laughs> like, can you just cut through the crap and maybe just say that you wanted to spend time with me? Um, and kind of from that meeting in the garden, they begin this clandestine relationship. Um, you know, she says, nothing goes unseen. This is too dangerous. And, um, you know, and she kind of runs away. And then they they kind of start this this romance of meeting in secret and kissing in the the hedge maze I think it's a hedge maze, um, and she says I think one of the 
most profound lines in the book because I just think it's so starkly true in the world that Klein has created in the book. She says to him, I have never loved before. I fear to lose what little I possess. And she, and she, and then Klein says he understood that I meant my virtue, my only wealth. And that's just very true <laughs> in this world. At least that's literally all she has because they don't have position. You know, the position they have is given. It's not by birth. She doesn't have money. She doesn't really have, you know, she has no family except for Polonius and Laertes. So I, I felt like that that was a very, a very stark encapsulation of the danger for her in this relationship. But while I that's will- true, I, we should also acknowledge um, one of the many things that Klein, I think, works hard to literalize, not literalize, works hard to make clear that Shakespeare's play leaves ambiguous, like Klein tells us flat out how old Hamlet and Ophelia are, um, which is one of the big kind of questions that people like to talk, I think, sometimes too much about um, as Shakespeare scholars in the play. Uh, also, there's this big question in the play, do Hamlet and Ophelia consummate their relationship? Um, you know, we have uh, the fishmonger scene and uh, let her not walk in the sun as the sun breed maggots in a dead dog, so shall your daughter conceive. All that stuff that plays around with fertility and pregnancy and did they sleep together? Um, well, in in Klein's novel, they do sleep together and it is... Um, it is as romantic as YA novels get, I think. Um, and the the scene in the the film is um, is fairly steamy for a PG thirteen. At least it, it was, in my opinion. And it's interesting too because in the in the movie they make the choice to make to make that encounter after they get secretly married. But in the book, it's like they they get together once before their marriage ceremony happens, which, again, is makes things much more dangerous for her, because at that point, he could have been like, cool, I'm done. Right. You know, um, so I I thought that was an interesting choice in the movie, too. But I I think, you know, um, it's it's yeah, it's it's interesting. And I need to talk about, though, because I feel like I'm taking too long. And there's one thing I definitely want to mention and then give you guys a chance to talk. Um, Something that happens after Hamlet returns that is to me one of the more interesting things that happens in the novel and appears nowhere in the movie is a trick that Hamlet and Ophelia play on some some friends of theirs so I'm going to talk about that for a second um it really troubled me when I read it in the book um so Christiana the mean girl is kind of playing with on the affections of both Rosencrantz and Guildenstern um and kind of flirting with both but Ophelia says she seems to clearly, she seems to prefer Rosencrantz. And she really doesn't like Christiana because Christiana is really mean and always says things to her like, you dance like a goat. And why do you even try to do, you know, needlework, whatever. Um, and so Ophelia has read a, plot, a tale of mistaken love in one of these stories that she reads to Gertrude. And she says, I saw how by imitating it, I could trick Christiana and sow discord to the confusion of all. Um, and it kind of caught me off guard because up to this point, she's not been, uh, this Ophelia has not been written as any, as a trick, tricky kind of person, a person who would want to sow discord necessarily. Um, and so she tells Hamlet the plan without telling him why she wants to hurt Christiana, that Christiana's mean. And because she didn't want, I didn't want him to think me too unkind. And he says an excellent device worthy of a playwright. Because of course it is. Um, Yeah, in that same paragraph, they say like plot, 
text device like they use right. all these literary mm-hmm. words right in a row they're really shoving it in your face yeah. we, we must hide our authorship of this work she says and it's basically a it's it's a kind of like a much ado about nothing-esque situation a little bit in that you have letters given to people um you know to try to put two people together but this is this is not to try to help someone fall in love this is to to make a mistake so they um everybody's going to be disguised at like a masquerade ball thing and so they gave they give christiana a note that says by your cloak of red and feathered face you give me proof that i have won the race my prize i'll take tis earned but free beneath the spreading boughs of the willow tree and they sign it rosencrantz right and then which is the guy she actually prefers. Then um, they give a note to Guildenstern, his rival, written as if from Christiana that says, I can no longer hide my longing for you. Meet the red bird at the willow tree. Like I'm paraphrasing. Um, Catch me and I am yours. And Ophelia says that she thinks this is going to be like take the wind out of Christiana because she, Ophelia says she thinks what will happen is that Ophelia and uh, or that Christiana and Guildenstern will realize almost immediately, hey, you're not like she'll realize you're not the guy that I thought I was meeting here. And they'll feel embarrassed and that'll be the end of it. And it'll be like perhaps an embarrassment or a humiliation or an awkward moment. What happens instead is they meet up under the tree and have sex is what is heavily implied in the novel. You know, Ophelia sees them um, sink to the ground without breaking their gas, their grasp on each other. And she's overcome by shame. And is like, we have to leave. We can't watch this. And, um, and she's very troubled by what happens. Um, and then after all this happens, it's, I'm going to read this bit because it's faster to just read it. The next day, Rosenplan- Rosencrantz paid court to Christiana. She was breathless and coy and blushed to excess. And then Ophelia says, he's confused. And when he left, she complained that men were so unaffected by love. So Christiana still seems to think that it was Rosencrantz she slept with the night before. Soon thereafter, Guildenstern called, bringing a love token and speaking honeyed words. She was cold to him, but he took this for discretion and left in good cheer. Um, and she says that there's no way that they didn't know who the other person was, but it seems like that they were mistaken. And later, Hamlet tells her that he was drinking with the two guys and Guildenstern boasted that he made love to her, and then the, he and Rosencrantz get in a fight, and Hamlet splits them up by saying, the lady was a light one, undeserving of their love. They both agreed, shook hands, and were friends again. And that's when Ophelia, that's when Ophelia decides, though, that, um, that this authorship stuff doesn't work because it's on male terms. Like, because when they talk about it afterwards... Hamlet essentially says bros before hoes, right? He he says she's not important. It's f- better that they made up. It doesn't matter, you know, about her part in it. And um, Ophelia responds to him and says, you know, men say that women are fickle, but this is this is ridiculous. Don't you understand that her reputation is at stake? So this is when Ophelia sort of really starts to learn that behind all of these literary devices that she and Hamlet have read and are employing is a, essentially a patriarchal value system. That's true. And, 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 you know, and she, she says she, I I had not intended for Rosencrantz and Guildenstern to triumph from my trick and be so satisfied with their stolen favors, you know? So I, I would agree with all that. I do think that, that this is the point when she starts to realize, you know, that, it's 
that, that this is the way things are structured. The thing that frustrated me a little bit about this is that I got a little bit frustrated with her getting on her high horse with Hamlet when she, the entire plot was her idea. Yeah, and, I, I and, think she's you know, just not, she's immature that. at that point and doesn't realize how much she's throwing another woman under the bus. Yeah, well, and, and it's, it's and I mean, and I, I believe, you know, I believe her. She's not a real person, but, you know, it, it's, I, I think that it's meant to be an honest thing when she says that she didn't mean for that to happen, right? But, you know, especially given things like modern consent laws, I mean, we would probably consider that something like rape by fraud now or it, something. It like, is. It I actually mean, made you know, me think of, um, do you guys know that scene from Revenge of the Nerds? I've heard of it. There's, I've never seen the movie, but I've, I've heard that, I've heard that scene referenced many times. Um, and and this is true of of some other eighties um, movies too. Something similar happened in Sixteen Candles, um, but the idea is that like some guy or girl is so drunk that they don't know they think they're having sex with one person, but really they're having sex with another person, at, which you know is legally rape and terrible. Um, but that doesn't matter because in the morning they decide the sex was really good so it's fine um yeah that that scene made me think of that sort of 80s teen film trope which we in 2019 would not think was okay well and you know it's interesting how he turns it she says so then she gets mad at hamlet when he says you know women are fickle whatever and she says you've wronged one of my sex and he says so then he flips it and says we have not wronged the ignorant girl but helped her to be rid of false loves she would surely have come to further grief for rosencrantz and gildenstern are deceivers both they're vile traitors loyal only to themselves which does turn out to be true but he kind but of uses that such as a, a patronizing argument for him to well make. It, yeah it really is and then she in the, in the end of all this is she says christiana was for a time chastened Spurned by both her lovers, she silently bore the gossip about her reputation. And 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 we and the other thing about all this that's never mentioned, but we've been given no no clue up to this point that Christiana is that we know she's mean, but we've never, you know, Klein never suggests that she's indiscreet. Or I mean, she mentions her kind of playing with the affections of both of those guys, but it's 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 implied that this is with like favors or words. Like she's not been painted to be the kind of person who, you know would just sleep with anybody under a willow tree like and and Ophelia I think also it's also interesting because she tries to almost tries to rationalize it to herself because when she's thinking surely it's impossible that they wouldn't have known who who each other were like you know and she 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 wonders things like had Christiana recognized Gildenstern and taken her pleasure nonetheless you know or was like basically Ophelia's trying to figure out is it was she willingly untrue or had she been truly deceived and, you know, she kind of is trying to decide because basically she's trying to decide how much this is her fault. <laughs> That's how kind of how I read it. Um, but so that that was one of the most interesting things to me about this middle part of the book, particularly given another thing that we were going to talk about, which I'll just say quickly, which is that um, she and Hamlet have at least one conversation about um, he has an anatomy textbook with all the insides of a person pictured out. And he tells her about how in other countries, you know, people will cut open dead bodies to figure out what's happening on the inside. And she's very disturbed by this. But the idea of talking about the inside versus the outside and then thinking that through with issues in the play and the novel of Hamlet acts one way on the outside. Nobody knows what he's really feeling on the inside. You know, Ophelia appears to be crazy in the play. Um, in the book, she's not. But in the play, she really might be. All of that, when you take it alongside this other story of this prank, you know, a person is appears to be one person or is disguised on the outside. And Christiana thinks it's one person 
under the mask, but it's not, right? It's all of that preoccupation with appearances versus the reality underneath that is really interesting in the middle part of the novel. So Katie, I like your point about perception and reality and insides and outsides. I think that's a great segue into the third and final section of the novel, um, which is set at the Saint-Emilion convent in France. Um, I really think it's the culmination of Ophelia's growth as a character. I like that you talked so much about the Rosencrantz, Guildenstern, Christiana plot, um, because I think the third section of the novel shows us how much Ophelia matures um, from that space to where she ends the novel. Uh, All of these threads that uh, we've already talked about, her search for mother figures in people like uh, Elnora and Gertrude, her desire to fight against gendered double standards, um, and something that we actually haven't um, talked about very much, uh, the fact that Ophelia has a really strong, and is taught a really strong knowledge by other women of plants and uh, period medicine. All these things um, are developed more deeply in the third section of the novel, Uh, as Ophelia kind of gets more mature and empowered. So she arrives at the convent. As we said, she um, has consummated her marriage with Hamlet. She's escaped Elsinore. Um, We did not mention this yet, but she is in fact pregnant at that point. Uh, In order to get out of Elsinore, she disguises herself as a man, Um, If you know anything about Shakespeare's other plays, you know this is a common uh, early modern trope. Shakespeare uses it, most notably in Twelfth Night and As You Like It. Uh, When she's disguised as a man, Ophelia calls herself Philippe Lowe, which if you write that out, it's basically an anagram of Ophelia. Also, Lowe is French for I. Um, This convent section is, is really about what people see and what they don't see. Um, because she's trying to hide her pregnancy. She's also trying to figure out um, things about faith and truth and the visible and the invisible. Uh, I want to mention two characters that I think are super important um, in the convent section of the novel quickly, and then I want to talk about the tacked-on relationship at the end that I already mentioned. Um, I'll go in-depth into one character and then just kind of breeze past another. Uh, I want to talk about Ophelia's relationship with Therese, the nun, um, who is... Ophelia is sort of angry and frustrated with her at the beginning, because Therese is hyper-religious. She's about outward displays of piety and is pretty traditional. Um, She fasts quite a lot. She regularly um, mortifies the flesh, um, whips herself... Uh, and I think she wears a hair shirt at some point. Uh, she sees visions. She sees the infant Christ suckling at her breast. Uh, first, Ophelia, because she is um, trained in period medicine, she does a lot of medicalizing of Therese's situation. Um, she kind of thinks she's crazy. Uh, Therese does become progressively more sick, um, and Ophelia tries to heal her. Um, for a while, but eventually um, Ophelia recognizes that maybe trying to heal her and medicalize her situation isn't the right thing to do. Um, She stopped doing this and does the best she can to 
ease her pain and to contribute to her dying well. Um, the medieval and early modern periods had this concept of uh, the Ars Moriendi, the good death, uh, the, the way to, to die appropriately. So I want to read um, the passage of the novel that covers Teresa's death and, and just kind of talk about what, um, what that means for Ophelia's progression as a character. I pour some oil of rosemary steeped in cloves onto a cloth. Rosemary, for remembrance, of course. I have read its pungence can sometimes restore memory and speech. With the cloth, I wipe Teresa's face. Her eyelids flutter open. She sees me and shakes her head slowly. Jesus, come to me, she says, her voice weak and plaintive. Why does my Lord come no more? Therese spreads her hands on her sunken chest. Alas, she no longer has the vision of suckling the Christ child, whispers Angelina, and now she is in despair. I have nothing to give. See how I am withered. Oh, Jesus, have mercy on me. Um, and now Ophelia is speaking. Without thinking, moved by a will that is not my own, I turn and with one swift motion lift baby Hamlet, uh, she's given birth and named her child after his father, from his basket and unwrap him. His arms and legs, freed from their swaddling, beat the air. I hold the infant upright before Therese. His eyes open wide in his rosy face, and he waves his tiny fists. When Therese sees the infant, she smiles, and her eyes shine, like bright lamps revealing her very soul. With sudden strength, she leans forward, takes the baby in her bony arms, cradling him close to her. Tears spring from her dry eyes like water from the rock in the desert. It's my salvation, exclaims Cerise. She strokes the baby's smooth, warm flesh. She breathes deeply. He smells of honey and roses and milk, she murmurs. Uh, a look of ecstasy on her face. Inspired, Angelina begins to pray the words of the aged Simeon when he saw the child Jesus. Lord, now let thy servant go in peace according to thy word, for mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all people to be a light to lighten the nations. Before Angelina is finished, Cerise has died. So I wanted to read that passage because I think it really shows a change in Ophelia's character. Um, she's using existing knowledge and texts to elevate uh, the goals and value of others, completely the opposite of how she treated uh, Christiana in the, the previous section. I think her experiences at the convent really change her. Um, her experience becoming a mother makes her more willing to elevate the desires of other people um, in addition to learning from the example of the the nuns that she lives with in St. Emilian. So I, I wanted to talk about um, that passage in particular because I think it's just a, a real change in her character and also um, incredibly bold and different for a YA novel to treat that kind of religious experience as valid truth. What did you guys think about that passage? I thought it was beautiful. Um, it is very reminiscent of Julie, Julian of Norwich and Marjorie Kemp, I would say. Um, so I, I do appreciate her taking, uh, Klein taking inspiration from some of the women that we mentioned earlier and their work. Uh, but also I, I agree it is showing Ophelia 
um, coming into maybe a more adult womanhood versus this partial womanhood that she came to understand and expect from her experiences at court, which is all intrigue and um, self-importance. And I just, I love the idea of a 12 or 13 year old girl uh, discovering the Song of Simeon for the first time. Um, It's one of my favorite prayers in the whole Bible. I pray it all the time. Uh, I I think it's so selfless and beautiful and and really about um, going through the earth with a heavenly perspective in mind. Um, so I, I try to pray it a lot in, in my own spiritual life. But I, I just love that that beautiful, simple, selfless prayer is hidden in this young adult novel. I think that's such a cool thing. I loved that it was there. It was it was a little weird for me because, right, the baby she's clutching and she's she's taking such joy in is is, you know, baby Hamlet. <laughs> I, I mean, you know, it's not, it's not the Christ child. On the other hand, you know, I think you're right that, that she, Ophelia has progressed, you know, in a way where she can, and I, I'm going to say this terribly, I'm going to try to say it the way that I'm thinking it, but her, her kind of, her womanhood is expanding out and she's, she's, you know, viewing life and she's viewing herself in this community as a, in a way that um, includes other women. Like you said, Leah, at court, it's all competition, and I mean, and there were people who were kind to her, people like Elnora, but it was it was a world of precariousness and which and, and I mean, you know, there, she definitely spends time at the convent in the beginning worried because nobody knows she's pregnant yet. And she's worried that she's going to be cast out. But when it, it becomes known that she is pregnant and they they say that she can stay after that, I think she does change a lot. And because just the acceptance She's accepted by all of these women. And that's the other thing. Like you said, Victoria, she's been searching for mother figures this whole time. And, you know, when she gets to the convent, you know, um, in in um, Mother Ermintrude, that's her name, right? Um, yes. The, yeah. Um, they're kind of superior. Um, she she tells her, you know, that I'm, I'm worried about how to be a mother. But then she also says later, I, I know how to mother because I've watched you. Right. And I thought that was really, really powerful. And that was one of my favorite parts. It's so beautiful. And it's it's ascribing motherhood not to biological motherhood, too. It's saying that she is mothering um, her charges in the convent, the the novices um, and the the nuns that, you know, um, she is a mother superior. And then through um, Therese, we have that that image of the Madonna and child um raised up as as motherhood too yeah i just i think this this convent section is so beautiful and so progressive in its conservatism if that makes any sense um i think it does yeah absolutely i i I feel like the the um the separate femininity um and and the way that it's valued here um you wouldn't find in a lot of more mainstream feminist ya novels um, I said I wanted to mention another relationship. I'm just going to say like two sentences about it because we're really running over time. Um, there's also Marguerite, um, who Ophelia um, teaches to write. Um, Ophelia goes from this 
person who is aping, um, as I said, very patriarchally inflected um, methods of metaphor and writing to someone who uh, teaches women to write their own stories in their own words. And uh, she does this for Marguerite because Marguerite um, is also a... uh, a survivor of early modern rape culture. Um, she turns out to have been assaulted by um, Fortinbras, who invades Denmark in the play. Uh, and Ophelia says, look, you have to tell your story because otherwise this stuff is going to keep happening. Um, so Marguerite is important because um, Ophelia isn't just um, writing the way she has been taught to write in this very patriarchal way. She's telling women um, to tell their own stories with their own voices, and that's another step forward. Uh, Last thing I'm going to say about the convent section is seven pages, I counted, seven pages from the end of the novel. Horatio shows up, declares his love for Ophelia, says he's going to raise baby Hamlet as his own, um, that he doesn't care that it's somebody else's kid. Um, and they essentially live happily ever after. It's nice, I guess. It's very tacked on, especially given the character growth Ophelia experiences in this really vibrant, intellectual female community. Um, In the interview that I mentioned earlier, Klein says that this focus on romance came mostly from publishers' notes saying that um, the teen audience of this young adult novel were going to expect Ophelia to end up with someone in the end. Um, I know and talk to a lot of girls in their teens and early, uh, young women in their early twenties, and I think that those publishers should have more respect for this audience and what they like, and I, I really don't think, um, this relationship with Horatio necessarily needs to be there. Um, what did y'all think about that? I would agree. I would have appreciated it a lot more if we could see Ophelia just continuing to live on her own and perhaps growing more as a person. Cause of course she's still very young at the end of this book. Um, and I, I would appreciate Uh, having more female characters like Ophelia being able to um, reach more of a concrete happiness on their own uh, without men. Uh, To to quote pop culture, she don't need no man. Um, That's awesome. Yeah, like, while Harito is a very, he's definitely the best male character in the whole book. Yeah, I, I, I think mean, I yeah, can... that's true. But I mean, that's because Laertes is mostly a non-presence. I mean, he's there sometimes. <laughs> Laertes is mostly a non-presence. Uh, Claudius and Polonius are trash, but, basically, and yeah. and Hamlet yeah. isn't very interesting. Yeah, it's a very, very low bar to be the best male character in this book. It's it's not necessarily a high compliment. <laughs> um, so of, of all the male characters for her to end up with, I'm glad it's Horatio. But she, like, 
she could do just fine on her own. Well, and I, you know, to me, the, the most frustrating thing about it is that it was like, you got to tie this up right now. Like, yeah, you know, it feels I mean, really like, fast. Yeah. And well, and it's been made clear through the book that, that she's a person who desires romantic love. She knows she doesn't want to be a nun. So, you know, it's not like she's decided to pursue a contemplative life. So there's a possibility that she might, you know, love again or marry again in the future. But, you know, you don't I mean, there's no need for it to happen immediately. Like and that's that's the frustrating thing to me is I thought it's particularly because all the way through the book, she only ever regarded Horatio as that guy who stood guard while I was making out with Hamlet in the orchard. Like, I, I mean, I didn't feel like there was any groundwork laid <laughs> for that at all and so if you don't lay any groundwork to lead up to that as much then when he shows up it it's it feels completely out of nowhere and like because she seems so satisfied it's just strange like she's not looking to escape her situation she's perfectly happy at the convent so to me the only thing that would make her leave then in that case would be if she actually really loved the person who showed up but we've been given no indication that she does love Horatio that way I don't know yeah it, it was very frustrating yeah. and I actually there are things that are crazy and I don't like about the movie, but I like that the movie didn't mess around with that okay, at all. So let's, now that we've talked way too long about the novel, um, that gives us a good excuse, Katie, to go straight into the movie. So let's um, go in the same order as we did with our three um, novel sections and say, let's say one thing uh, that stands out to you about your corresponding section of the film. All right. As far as the court of Elsinore stands uh, in the film, I actually prefer it to the one that's in the book. The court is more well-developed in the film because of the realness that it depicts. You can see Ophelia interact with this community of women. And while we don't have as many well-defined women as we do in the book, it is the women that we see at the court. We do not see the men. We do not see the majority of the politics or intrigue. Um, but the film does emphasize the political intrigue aspect. And so it feels more like we're stepping into a historic scene where Ophelia actually existed and actually had something to say and something to contribute. That's a that's a fantastic point, and I I would agree with you. Um, though I I think largely the the film and the novel have very different goals and very different sets of priorities. Um, I I do think you're right that the film makes the court more about uh, intrigue. Katie, what did you think about the Ophelia and Hamlet sections of the film? I thought it was um, I thought that the middle portion in general was different in the film in part because like I said, their relationships more compressed. So you don't really get days and days of them sneaking around <laughs> like hiding. And um, one thing I think that is better in the book is because that there's more time for that in the book, you see her slowly fall out of favor with Gertrude because she's just not around all the time before she kind of started up this relationship with Hamlet. She was always there when the queen needed her, but now she's gone all the time. And some of that stuff is still there. You know, Queen Gertrude in both the book and the film derides her because she hears that, that Ophelia has been playing around the, in, the, in the, the country with a common with a common guy. 
like she doesn't know it's Hamlet in disguise, right? And so yeah, she's in their pastoral clothes. Yes, yeah, they're playing, you know, playing pastorally. Um, but so that's still there. But you know, I, and I, I think that their relationship feels in some ways a little sweeter. I, and I don't know if part of it is. Uh, to me, the guy who plays Hamlet in the movie just has a very young face. And to me, they almost seem the same age in the film. Which, and I, I don't know if that's just, but in the book, particularly because early on in the book, there's a scene where much older, like, but she's still young. I mean, pretty young. She's in the river. And he's like, he sees her and he's standing on the, the bank and he's talking to her. That happens in the movie too, but she's much older when it happens in the movie. And it was quasi creepy in the yeah, book. Yeah, they me, make it a into bit. a, like, weird sexy thing and it's because she has a like yeah fish it's weird, mermaid she, metaphors and he's creeping on her while she's swimming but she's also like faking like she's gonna come out undressed like she's it's almost like a game of chicken she's like i'm gonna come out and like trying to get see if he will walk away so there's like this back and forth whereas in the book he's just kind of being creepy and she wants him to leave so she can get her clothes on but no, but with with that kind of change in the movie it almost seems like their ages are more equalized out in the movie the 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 prank they play on christiana and ridiculous and cranston gildenstern is completely gone so that whole you know that whole plot device and all of its, you know, attendant implications is just gone. And so for that reason, the middle to me felt more flat, not as interesting. Um, a lot of that stuff. And it's mostly just about, okay, let's get them together. Okay. Let's have them say some things that they say in the play. And, you know, they, I thought that the, the kind of secret marriage was kind of sweet. Like it was, you know, kind of done, with music in the background and you mostly just see it happening. There's not like a, you know, a really detailed um, thing, but you know, it was fine. I, to me, the part of the movie that I found most interesting was the end. Cause it's completely crazy. Um, but that is not really even about Ophelia and Hamlet. <laughs> so, um, and I don't want to, you know, spoil it for listeners. So I'll stop talking. Uh, you mentioned the music. So I want to, I want to call out the music um, real quick. Cause I, I did think, I, I didn't think a lot of things about the film were interesting, I will say. Um, I did think that the repeated music motif was interesting. There's this choral repetition of um, a quote from the play. Uh, doubt that the stars are fire. Doubt that the sun doth move. Doubt truth to be a liar, but never doubt I love. Um, and it's it's this kind of medieval-sounding choir that repeats it in various tones, depending on whether the mood of the film is uh, happy and lovey or scary, um, because Fortinbras is about to invade. Uh, but I, I did think that was interesting and a, a cool, appropriative touch, um, since you mentioned the music. Uh, but in terms of the third section of the novel, the convent section, um, it's really easy to talk about the corresponding section of the film, because it basically doesn't exist. Uh, we don't meet any nuns. We don't see Ophelia think about religion in any meaningful way. We don't see her working as a healer on her own at all. Horatio does not show up. Uh, Ophelia gives birth off-screen. In the film, she has a daughter instead of a son, which I guess is fine in terms of female community, but ultimately it's too little too late because they've gotten rid of so many of the other characters. Um, I was really disappointed um, that, uh, that the film did not seem to value um, the religious community of the convent the way that the novel does. 
yeah, when she comes like staggering in because she's sick or whatever, I, you don't even see the nun's face. I'm like, oh, good. Here's an oh, she's gone. Like it was bizarre. I mean, she she could have been going anywhere. Right. For, the fact that it was 14 a, a and a half minutes, by the way, from when she leaves Elsinore to the end of the movie. That's crazy. When she's starting ahead. to fake her death, you see Fortinbras in the forest like three trees away. Like they are there before she's in France. So it, the time is all yeah. off. Mega compressed. Okay, we have gone way over time, um, so let's let's keep moving. Uh, and Katie, I will let you take over and talk a little bit about the article I wrote. We're going to be talking um, about Victoria's article that she contributed to a, to a book called Shakespeare's Hamlet in an Era of Textual Exhaustion, um, and focused on the article is focused on this book, Ophelia by Lisa Klein, and. Um, one of the things that Victoria argued in her article, which listeners, you should all read Victoria's article, because unlike most academic writing, it is very cogent and there's tons of um, of solid, meaty um, argument and stuff in it. But it's very easy to read, which is difficult to find. Um, most academic writing is just a morass of clauses that, that don't go anywhere. So um, I am going to commend my former office mate on this article. The things that um, Victoria talks through a lot in the article is the difference between um, autonomy and agency, which are two words that sometimes people might use interchangeably. Um, and um, Victoria points out that Ophelia's agency um, in towards the end of the book is um, unaccompanied by autonomy. And this is when she's talking with Marguerite about writing her own narrative. And so, Victoria, can you talk for just a few minutes about agency versus autonomy and how Ophelia changes or how her situation changes with regard to agency and autonomy? Sure. Um, that's something that I think is really interesting about the novel itself, because typically um, agency and autonomy as you say, are used interchangeably and you sort of understand that you're always going to uh, have one and the other if a character is strong or independent. Agency is the ability to perform action. It's getting things done um, as a, a character or a protagonist. And autonomy is uh, independence. It's not requiring help from other people to accomplish that action. Very simply, you could you could do more nuanced definitions of both of those terms, but very simply, that's what they mean. What I think is really interesting about what Klein does with Ophelia's progression is um, one of the very first sentences of the novel is, I have always been a motherless girl. So Ophelia is someone who wants to have relationships with others. She's constantly defining herself um, through the other women around her. Gertrude and Elnora and Metschild the Healer. And later she's defining herself through her romantic relationship with Hamlet. Um, so she doesn't um, 
have agency unless she has a relationship with these other people in the beginning of the novel. But it is a um, a hollow kind of agency because she doesn't really understand or know who she is yet. Um, I think an easier novel, a, a novel with less nuance, would resolve that by... Um, making her realize she didn't need these other people and she was a full intelligent woman on her own by the end of the novel. This novel doesn't do that. This novel gives her agency through her knowledge of medicine, but also it gives her agency through the ability to educate other women. So it, it's still not joined with autonomy. She still needs to be a part of this community, um, the community of the convent, to have full agency. But I think the lack of autonomy um, at the end of the novel is a positive because she's seen what she herself can give um, to these other women and that's how she grows as a character. Whereas in the beginning of the novel um, her lack of autonomy is um, a, a flaw in her self-definition. That totally makes sense too I think because in the beginning of the novel she's in the position she's in, not because she's chosen to be, you know, she's, she's at court because her father took her there. She's obviously motherless through no fault of her own. But at the end of the book, she's chosen to, to go to the convent, to remain there, to submit to whatever rules or strictures there might be in living there. That was her choice. And so, you know, despite uh, what we might see as a lack of autonomy, because she's still, she's, she's submitting herself to an authority to Mother Ermintrude, but she's chosen to do that. And I think that makes all the difference. Because she has agency, right? She can give up yes. her, it, it is in her agency to give up a degree of her autonomy in order to be a valued member of this community. And I, I think that's a, a really big deal that the novel lets her do that and that the novel invests that with positive value. Absolutely. And that kind of leads into to one other thing I wanted to bring up. And one more thing that we can talk about about the article is that you talked way back at the beginning of our episode, because we've talked really long tonight, um, about uh, Ophelia being decontextualized um, at various points throughout literary history and seen as just an object lesson um, or something like that. And for various different kind of people's ideas of what she is and what we can quote learn from her. Um, but that also sometimes she's... Um, she's seen as just a kind of an oppressed pawn. Like she's just, you know, here for all these men to manipulate and there's not really much more else happening in her. But you say at the very end of the article that she occupies, actually you would argue that she occupies a third space, that she's not this oppressed pawn figure. She's not, but she's also not just an object lesson. So can you, what, what, what is the third space or what enables her to be in that third space and not actually have to be shoved into either of those two other roles? Uh, that is the other thing I think is so progressive and, and interesting about the way this novel is constructed is that Klein, um, who is a, a professor of early modern literature and, and clearly knows um, her stuff, knows the history of this era and has read a lot. Um, we talked earlier about the, the number of, of references that she kind of plants for us to find here. Um, one thing that is really interesting about what she's done there is she 
at the end of the novel gives us a reading list from Ophelia, um, and the reading list has um, the same three sections as the novel. There's um, a section from um, Gertrude's library, there's a section from Hamlet, um, and there's a section from the convent library. And uh, the existence of this reading list, um, first of all, it, it sort of makes like Ophelia is the friend of the reader of the novel. Um, like when I was a kid, I had this from the desk of Victoria stationery, um, and that's what this reading list makes me think of. Like Ophelia has sort of given us a piece of her stationery with this list on it. It's a very um, endearing kind of, of uh, reading recommendation paratext here. Uh, but because we have um, this list of period texts that we um, either hear Ophelia refer to during the course of the novel or hear other characters um, refer to in the novel. Katie, you mentioned um, Hamlet reading Vesalius's Anatomia and, and talking about uh, dissecting corpses. Um, because we have these period texts here and that they're in the world of the novel, um, I think this novel avoids falling into the kind of presentist trap that a lot of feminist YA falls into where you kind of drop 21st century girls with 21st century ideologies into the past um, and you are allowed to um, think oh, I can't believe all those people hundreds of years ago thought backward. It's so great that we don't think that way. Um, because the reading list gives us uh, a fuller universe, helps us realize to a certain degree that these are people who were influenced by their culture and talked back to it and had conversations with each other about books, um, I think we're less likely to have that kind of flat, decontextualized view of Ophelia, of Hamlet, of Elsinore, of the convent, etc. So I think the, the reading list is a really powerful paratext that helps us um, kind of negotiate uh, a third way between the cultural studies people on the left who, like Mary Pfeiffer, say um, Ophelia is just this lesson um, to be learned, this representative of teen girl dysfunction, and the historicists on the right who say she is a tool of the early modern patriarchy. Um, I think both of those are really reductive views, and that the novel, primarily through its reading list, does a good job of um, creating space and negotiating between the two. Thank you so much. Um, and I think those are the two big questions that I had. Was there anything else that you wanted to say, Victoria or Leah? Any anything that you wanted, any comments you wanted to make? Uh, I don't think so. I thank you so much, both of you, for reading it and for talking to me a little bit about it. I think we've um, this episode is is long enough, so I won't go on any more about my own writing. Um, but thanks a lot for reading it and talking to me about it. Uh, so I think uh, since we've been going for about an hour and a half now, um, sorry listeners, I think we will go to our final segment, which 
Um, as in every show, it is our passing on segment where we give you recommendations, things we think you should read, watch, listen to, uh, or generally experience. Uh, Leah, you go first. Sure. Um, my first suggestion is actually a silly one. Um, it's the song Ophelia by the Lumineers. Uh, it is definitely um, more of a modern take on Ophelia, but it is a fun song. I found myself listening to it multiple times while doing reading and prepping for this episode. Um not necessarily because it is so Shakespearean, but because it's such a catchy tune. So I think listeners will appreciate it and uh, also appreciate the slight Shakespearean influence that it has. Uh, um, true story. A line from that song was almost uh, an epigraph to my article. Really? Awesome. That's, that makes it so much better. Yeah, okay. I had I had to cut it because it didn't really work, but I wanted to make it work. Oh, I love it. Okay, I didn't even know that, and I was listening to the song. So there you go. Um, my other suggestion is actually Tina Packer's Women of Will. Uh, so that is looking at how William Shakespeare's treatment of women in his plays and sonnets develops over time. And how women are given more agency, more power um, through, throughout his works as it progresses. Uh, I believe she has a show, but her book is out, and it is definitely worth a read. I have seen the stage show and can vouch for it being wonderful. So um, I, I second Leah's endorsement of Tina Packer's book and would also say, if you can see the play, see the play. Uh, Katie, how about you? So I'm going to um, to recommend a, a journal this week. Um, we, you know, we've read Ophelia, which is, you know, an adaptation or appropriation of Shakespeare. And so this week I'm recommending Borrowers and Lenders, the Journal of Shakespeare and Appropriation. Um, and full disclosure, listeners, this uh, journal was founded at the University of Georgia <laughs> while we were students there. And um, my very sadly now deceased major professor was one of the original co-editors of the journal. So this is something that I've known about for a long time, but hadn't occurred to me to recommend before until we were talking about uh, this tonight. So basically, um, Borrows and Lenders is fully online. You can read every article um, on the website in PDF form, um, and it's free. So you don't have to subscribe or anything like that. But if you have any interest in adaptations of Shakespeare, you should really check it out. Um, they have everything archived online. The current issue right now is um, the most recent issue right now is fall 2018. Um, they didn't do a spring 2019 issue this year. I'm thinking probably because um, Dr. Desmond, who used to be my major professor passed away at the beginning of last fall. So I think that probably threw things into a little bit of chaos for a little while. But um, the one from fall 2018 that's there was uh, called Shakespeare across time and space um, and features lots of different kinds of articles about um, different uh, like different appropriations sometimes two or three in in one article so in that that article there's or in that edition there's one called time travel and the return of the author uh colon shakespeare in love the shakespeare code and bill 
Like it'll be, they'll, sometimes they'll talk about multiple adaptations or appropriations. Um, there are also sections for digital appropriation. There are always book reviews um, and borrowers and lenders. One of the few things I have, well, really probably the only thing I've ever had published um, kind of as a scholar was a, a book review for borrowers and lenders. Um, and uh, so it's, it's a great journal. Um, it's super interesting. And if you are very interested in Shakespeare or if you're very interested in adaptation, definitely if you like both, you should check it out. Um, not least because it is so much easier to access than most other academic journals because it's all online and it's free. Yes, it is a, a lovely journal run by lovely people. Um, and if you're interested in the topic of this episode particularly, they also have uh, an episode, uh, excuse me, they also have uh, an edition of the journal about uh, Shakespeare and girlhood that is quite good. Okay, uh, my two recommendations are Lisa Klein's other Shakespeare YA novel, Lady Macbeth's Daughter, um, which is exactly what its title sounds like. Um, if you like fantasy and magic and spells um, and also lots of stuff about your first period, check out Lady Macbeth's Daughter. Uh, it is very interesting. I'm also going to recommend a, another but quite different uh Hamlet appropriation. Margaret Atwood's short story, Gertrude Talks Back, uh, which is funny and smart, and uh, the action of Hamlet condensed into about a page and a half from Gertrude's point of view. So if that sounds like your jam, check out Margaret Atwood's Gertrude Talks Back. Uh, and that brings us to the end of a way too long episode. Thanks for sticking with us, listeners. Thank you for listening to the Christian Feminist Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. If you have a topic or a reading recommendation for a future show, or if you just want to drop us a line and say hi, you can do so at christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on our Facebook page and check out the show notes from this and our other episodes at the Christian Humanist blog at christianhumanist.org. The Christian Feminist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Kristen Philippic is our press liaison. For Leah Flynn, and Katie Grubbs. I'm Victoria Reynolds Farmer. Tune in in about three weeks when we'll discuss the intersections of gender, race, and class in the short stories of Kate Chopin. Until then, in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, and in all things love. <laughs>